And I was more scared of a college classroom than I was of a war zone. So I remember very, very distinctly walking up to an army recruiter and going, hey, so how do I do this? And so I joined as a medic. I was stationed in Italy. I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, 2010. Ultimately, I was hurt. I was retired for a traumatic brain injury. I struggled to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But I had the GI Bill, and so I figured, you know what, I'll, I'll go use it. I started as a dietetics student. I was trying to relate everything back to neuroscience. A professor took notice of me. She happened to be a neuroscientist herself, and she invited me into her research lab. I published my first, first author paper as an undergrad, and I told her I, I really want to be a doctor. She said, okay, well, why? When I was a patient, I hated being told, you know, hey, this is the end of the line. This is as far as modern medicine goes. And I realized I was more interested in making new therapies than prescribing the current ones. My focus in grad school was basically on developing a traumatic brain injury model and a regenerative model. You know, the military really shaped my way. And, you know, the irony is that I went into the military because I scared of school. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students who want to survive grad school and thrive in their career afterwards. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with Dr. James Hentig. James is a clinical research scientist and retired military veteran. After his medical retirement from the military in 2012, James went to school to conduct well-funded graduate and postdoctoral research focused on traumatic brain injuries, which laid the foundation for his current work in medical device research. James joins the podcast to talk about the transition from his military career to his research career, as well as what it's like to be a patient researcher and what grad students today should be doing to prepare for a career in industry research. This is an inspiring episode for anyone who feels emotionally connected to their area of study. Additionally, James shares several key tips on breaking into industry research that you won't want to miss. One quick note, this episode does contain discussions of war, physical injury, and mental health, so some people may want to skip this episode or simply save it for another day. So be sure to connect with Jamie on LinkedIn. Feel free to scroll down into the description of this episode in order to see the link to his LinkedIn page. And be sure to rate and review the podcast if you like today's episode. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. Uh, To start us off, could you just introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, first and foremost, thank you. Uh, so my name is Dr. Jamie Hintig. Uh, I am a neuroscientist. I got my PhD from the University of Notre Dame. I did a short postdoc at the NIH. And I have been a DOD TBI uh, SME or SME, subject matter expert, for the last year. And uh, we'll get into that as we move on. Yeah, absolutely. So let's. Uh, I want to start with your story at the beginning. Um, and so the beginning for you could either mean the beginning of grad school or the beginning of uh, your career in the military, which I know is correlated with things that you did in grad school. Um, but why did you go into the military and or why did you go to grad school? Yeah, I mean, for me, it really started at 17. Um, I came from a blue collar family. I watched both my mom and dad work in a factory. Uh, they very much so had the mindset of, you know, when you graduate high school, it's, it's time to take care of yourself. And so that either means going to college, going and getting a job, or joining the military. And 
I watched both my parents work in a factory and it scared me. Um, they did not oh. seem to enjoy their life. Uh, and I was more scared of a college classroom than I was of a war zone. Um, so I remember very, very distinctly walking up to an army recruiter and going, Hey, so how do I do this? How do I sign up? I'm ready right here right now. Um, I joined at 17, which meant I had the parental permission. So, uh, dad worked nights, mom worked days. So, uh, you know, went on to the recruiter during the night. Mom came with me to sign the papers. I wanted to be an infantryman. I wanted to be 11 Bravo. I wanted to kick down doors and pull triggers. And mom was not having that at all. Uh, so I did well on what was the ASVAB or, or the military test. Recruiter basically told me I had a good PT score um, and a good ASVAB score. And so I joined as a medic. And we showed mom this little cardboard cutout of, of this guy in scrubs. And we're like, I'm going to work in a hospital, mom. And meanwhile, my recruiter's like, yeah, we're going to sign you up for airborne school or ranger school. You'll be on the front lines. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, I joined the military because I was scared of going to college. Um, and I started, you know, I, I went off. I was stationed in Italy. I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, 2010. Uh, ultimately, I was hurt. I was retired for a traumatic brain injury. So I spent most of 2011 in, in a hospital going through occupational therapy and talking to neurosurgeons and neurologists. And then I got out and I, I tried readjusting. Um, I struggled to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I was young, I was 22. Um, but I had the GI bill. And so I figured, you know, what, I'll, I'll go use it. I'll try. Um, I started as a dietetics student. And I was like, I can count to nine fat has nine calories. Uh, a professor took notice of me and realized that, you know, when I was in my first cell and class, I was trying to relate everything back to neuroscience. You know, when I had my TBI, I did a lot of just random reading on the internet, Google, oh, yeah. what to expect, like what happens to my brain. Um, and so she realized that it was kind of odd for a freshman to know all this. And, and I had lots of questions and, I, you know, lots of missing puzzle pieces. She happened to be a neuroscientist herself, and she invited me into her research lab, and that just kind of started it. Um, you know, I, I published my first first author paper as an undergrad. Wow. And I got ready to, you know, make that transition. You know, um, you graduate, and it's it's what's next. And I told her, I, I really want to be a doctor. I want to be a physician. She said, okay, well, why? I said, well, I want to help people. She said, okay, that's a horrible answer. You can't say that in med school interviews. Um, so why, why? And I told her, you know, well, when I was a patient, I hated being told, you know, Hey, this is the end of the line. This is as far as, you know, modern medicine goes. So good luck. And I realized I was more interested in making new therapies than prescribing the current ones. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's, you know, that is what a researcher does. And so I, I went off and I, you know, started pursuing my PhD. Um, you know, my focus in grad school was basically on developing uh, a traumatic brain injury model and a regenerative model. So we could start looking at both injury and regenerative response and how we start to basically, uh, you know, induce innate plur, you know, pluripotent stem cells, uh, adult stem cells. So, you know, the military really kind of shaped my way. And, you know, the irony is that I went in to the military, got scared of school, and then spent yeah. 10% afterwards. Yeah. That's funny. So, um, 
So you went to grad school. Did you go to a master's program or was it straight in a straight PhD program? I went straight into a PhD program. Okay. Um, you know, I, I applied to a few schools. Uh, you know, for my undergrad research, I was working in zebrafish and I was doing, you know, neuroregeneration in zebrafish. And, and I kind of just came across this gap in the literature as an undergrad in that, you know, there was lots of brain injury work in zebrafish. But they take a needle and they stab a portion of the brain. And that's more uh, resemblance of, of a penetrating trauma or gunshot wound. And while it's really you know, reproducible, as far as recapitulating human injury, it's, it's not that common. Blunt force traumas are the most common in, in human populations. Uh, yeah, okay. And a penetrating trauma is automatically a severe trauma. In fact, most people that experience one don't survive. Whereas about 90% of all brain injuries are mild injuries or concussions. And so I started realizing that, you know, there isn't this blunt force model in zebrafish and basically all of the brain injuries are severe. And so I, I kind of wrote like a small, like NSF type of, you know, GRFP type of proposal uh, when I was going out to, to grad school interviews and I basically would hand it to them and be like, hey, this is what I want to do. It doesn't interest you. That's great. Thank you. Um, I'll move on. And I came across a gentleman named Dr. David Hyde uh, at the University of Notre Dame who worked in neuroregeneration, but he was uh, basically working in, in retinal regeneration. So he was you know, looking at the eye and he kind of came in and was like, it's a crazy idea. Um, I have no idea how to help you. I don't do the brain stuff, but if you want to try, I'll give you nine months to show some type of progress. If it works, we'll keep on going. If it doesn't, I'm going to put you on an eye project. Um, and that's kind of where we landed. You know, I, I was kind of fortunate. Things took off. Um, you know, basically I developed a, a model that did what I was hoping. I could look at a mild, moderate, and severe injury, multiple different types of pathologies, you know, brain bleeds and seizures and learning and memory diff you know, difficulties. And then we could start looking at the regenerative response that happened afterwards. Very cool. And so, uh, just to be clear, the, the animal model with the zebrafish, so you were like giving it, causing it blunt force trauma instead of the needle procedure that was happening, yeah. correct? So for lack of better terms, I, I basically did some physics and figured out how big of a marble and from what height I got to drop on their head. I see. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, uh, how, how fruitful was that like new area of research? It was actually it turned out to be really cool. Um, yeah. You know, I had a few people racing us as far as, you know, uh, getting scooped and whatnot. But by and large, um, you know, I, I did get my NSF GRFP. Uh, basically, during my, my tenure as a grad student, I secured about $500,000 worth of funding. Uh, I, was, I was extremely fortunate in a lot of that. Uh, put out, you know, uh, five papers as a grad student. Um, you know, we brought in a couple more. Uh, new grad students, you know, I started a new line of research and, and you know, again, he kind of gave me a few years to show proof of concept and that this is actually going to continue to be a thing. That it's not just a one hit wonder and now we're done. Hmm. Um, and now half the, about half the lab does brain injury work. And so, wow. you know, mine was really just kind of developing the model and validating it. You know, we did a few things about, you know, playing with some small molecule development and things like that to, start dealing with some of the regenerative pathways, but by and large, mine was, was more just development and validation, but now they're getting into, you know, RNA seq and, you know, all the, all the different omics. 
all the fun stuff. I'm kind of jealous of it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting that a student, uh, I don't know, brought in a, a new line of research into a lab like that. You know, my, yeah, I, I mean, it, my experience was was different in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I did a short postdoc as well. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I'm a clinical scientist now, but obviously most of my work as an undergrad and graduate student was preclinical. And because it was kind of so fruitful during grad school, uh, my PhD advisor let me do something that is rather unorthodox. Um, I did a simultaneous postdoc while finishing my PhD. Oh, wow. So I had two okay. independent advisors from two different institutions working in two very different areas. Uh, they did not collaborate. So basically, the last year and a half of my PhD, as I was writing my dissertation, things like that, finishing up some experiments in the lab. Uh, I was also working with a woman named Dr. Jessica Gill. Uh, at the time, she was at the uh, National Institute of Health, uh, the National Institute of Nursing Research. She was a clinical researcher, basically looking at blood-based biomarkers in traumatic brain injuries in veterans. And they both kind of agreed that they let me, you know, simultaneously work, um, you know, start working on projects for her, finishing up things for him. Uh, I'm that sounds busy. It, it, it was it was interesting. Um, it was interesting. It was a lot to juggle. Uh, you know, learning an entire new kind of discipline, clinical research. You have a lot less. You have a lot less freedom over your experimental design. Hmm. Um, so you rely a lot more on you know uh, more robust hypotheses and a lot more statistical tools. And, and so, you know, it was, it was a, it was a unique experience, but yeah, grad school by and far was a little non-traditional for me, Yeah, um, but it was a good time. Yeah. So you postdoced and then, um, when did your postdoc end? Like, I guess how far after you graduated with your PhD, where, did you keep doing that postdoc? Um, about two months. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I spoke with my postdoc advisor about, you know, moving out to DC and doing a more traditional type of postdoc. Uh, and she welcomed that, but she also, you know, kind of told me she feels like I've, I've mastered all the tools that I needed. Mm. And that, you know, if I wanted to come out and start learning some different, uh, some different techniques or things like that, that there's other, you know, advisors that she would suggest maybe doing a second quote unquote postdoc with. But she ultimately asked me, you know, so what is it that you want to do? And, I, you know, I told her, well, I, I want to go and be a clinical scientist and I'd, I'd like to work for the DOD. And she kind of was like, well, I, you have the tools to do that now. Hmm. Um, so why don't you go do that? And so, Yeah, then what happened? Well, you know, I, I kind of thought that was just like a pipe dream. Um, hmm. I figured it was something that maybe I would get an opportunity to do at some point. But I really kind of figured that I was going to have to go and, you know, really kind of show myself as a scientist first. Uh, again, especially with that non-traditional type of postdoc experience, my resume, at least date-wise, reads as a brand new graduate. Mm. And so, you know, I applied. I applied to probably hundreds of jobs. Um, and I had a headhunter hit me up and told me, hey, there's an open position for the traumatic brain injury center of excellence, which is 
uh, the DOD's Brain Injury Research Center. And I applied, got my interview, and in less than a week and a half after interviewing, I flew out there to take a look at the surroundings. Uh, it was moving from, you know, Notre Dame being in Indiana, is moving out to, to Fort Carson, Colorado. Never been to Colorado. Uh, never really been west of the Mississippi. So uh, it was kind of one of those things of, let's go and see if this is an area that I like too. So I flew out there, uh, signed my offer letter while I was there, and, you know, the rest kind of was history. You know, we had to start buying and selling houses during that that crazy time. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we bought our house here, sight unseen. So that was fun. Ooh. So. Did that work out? It did. It did. Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a great area. We have a beautiful home. Um, yeah. Not a whole lot to complain about. Yeah. So what was that transition from your postdoc to this, to the new job? Like, honestly, it was rough. Um, yeah. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. It was it was rough. I probably would have benefited from another six months or year of being a more traditional postdoc. Um, you know, again, some of the differences between preclinical and clinical work. Um, you know, preclinical, you just have so much more freedom to start exploring. You know, some of the mechanistic aspects. I'm, I'm a biologist by trade, right? So. Some of the mechanistic aspects of, of what you're looking at, um, you have a lot more control over your population. You know, uh, you know, as a former service member, I can I can tell you, guys on the line, uh, you know, your front line guys, your infantrymen, um, your special forces guys, they're really kind of hesitant to to let everything out and open. Mm, um, yeah. when you ask them, you know, Hey, so how many injuries have you had or what types of injuries or how are you doing? Are you experiencing numbness or anything like that? Um, you know, they come from a wide range of backgrounds. You know, some of them are, are, uh, you know, significantly older, they're 54 and they've had, you know, 32 injuries across their lifetime. Some of them are yeah. brand new 18 year old privates and they never played football in high school. They've never experienced anything. Um, so you just have this wider range and that you have to start to account for. And that comes, you know, with a lot of statistical tools and a lot of those statistical tools are out there. But I, as a preclinical scientist, my zebrafish were basically clonal. I didn't have to worry a whole lot about that. Um, you know, I ran a simple power analysis and collected my nine fish, <laughs> did my experiment and called it a day. Yeah, um, probably a lot more you have to control for. Yeah, there's population. a lot more confounding factors now. Yeah. Um, and so it, that was kind of unique. Um, you know, that was, it was something that I, I, you know, I did learn during my postdoc, you know, I, that was a, a rather rough transition itself. Um, but again, due to their proximity, you know, DC is, is just so target rich as far as, you know, service members go. Uh, I didn't really have to worry a whole lot about that. You could, you could kind of selectively, you could easily put together a, a little bit more tighter inclusion criteria yeah. of what you're looking for and call it a day. Um, out here, you know, we're collecting, you know, convenient samples of soldiers going through uh, in processing. So it's yeah. guys retiring, guys coming to a new base, 
uh, brand new privates coming in, anyone and everyone that we can grab. So it was, it was a rough transition. Um, you know, beyond that, it was, it was harder mentally and emotionally than I anticipated. How so? You know, I, I was retired for a brain injury and I didn't lead the, the military by choice. Um, I really wanted to go back in, but I have what's called a reenlistment code of four, which means I'm, I, my disability, uh, prohibits me from ever joining again. Hmm. And, you know, I, I decided, you know, when I was going to start doing this academic trajectory, this, that I wanted to do it to go and get as close to my military community as possible. And so, you know, after 10 years, I'm really excited. I had this position where that's what I get to do. I'm working right. with service members every day that have brain injuries. I did not anticipate the the mental and emotional toll that that might take. Um, you know, I I worked with special operators for a while uh, during a course where they use a lot of demolition tools. Uh, so they're oh. setting off door charges and flashbangs and you know live shoot houses, and it's a really cool experience. Um, but it triggered a lot of things in me, um, you know, a lot of memories, uh, you know, some of it is even just nostalgia where I'm like, just kind of honestly jealous of them. and like, Oh, I want to yeah. go play with you guys again too. Um, and you know, I, I did the job for, for about a year and I started going through some therapy that, that I started really kind of evaluating, you know, what am I wanting out of life? What are the things that I can control? What are the things that are impacting me? And it kind of came down to the fact that as much as I love this job, as much as uh, it's what I went to school for, like, you know, in some of my essays for fellowships, I had that explicit job at the explicit organization written down as like my future steps and goals. Um, I ultimately decided that I, I need to step down and actually today is technically my last day. Hmm. Um, and that in and of itself comes with a whole different emotional toll. Um, you know, sometimes protecting yourself is difficult. Um, but you know, going back to, you know, what's that superpower that superpower is hopefully being able to figure out and deal with that transition. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. Um, so I've, I've recently uh, accepted a new position as a clinical evaluation specialist at uh, a medical device company. So essentially I'm a medical writer. Um, and I look forward to that. You know, it's work from home. Uh, I was driving about 30 miles one way onto base. Um, but it, it'll, be, it'll be a nice break. I still get the, you know, use my science brain. Um, really contribute, you know, again, to another, another cause that I can really get behind and be passionate about. But I'd be lying if I said it, you know, it doesn't hurt to leave Yeah. when I've worked so hard towards that goal. Yeah. Man, what a career trajectory. I've got a ton of questions. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out which one to go for first. I, I think... So I think one thing that, I mean, 
it's obvious, but I think one thing that stands out to me is that you you kind of got into grad school and became a scientist to study in some senses like yourself, your experience, like your the population that is like you. Mm -hmm. Um so what was it like to be you know, both the observer and kind of like the thing being observed? Um, yeah, I mean, I consider myself, uh, so the term is, is a patient researcher. Um, mm. you know, there is a small collection of individuals who, uh, obviously I'm not collecting data myself, but there are a small collection of individuals that, um, are scholars and, and participants in and of themselves. Uh, you know, I have participated in studies before for some of my colleagues. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be able to to stand in front of some of them that you know are disheartened and you know feel the world kind of crashing around them and be able to say, "Look, dude, it, I know it sucks right now. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to get better, but I'm going to tell you that at the end of the day, it will be okay." Um, at the same time, I've had some unique experiences um, that are not positive. Um, mm. There is a lot of data surrounding service members with brain injuries. Uh, you start adding in comorbidities like PTSD, chronic pain, where outcomes are not good. Outcomes are actually just really, really bad. Um, and I've gone to poster sessions, you know, at SFN, uh, you know, where the researchers, you know, I, I uh, wear a KIA bracelet. Um, you know, I have, I have some friends that I've lost and it's one of the quickest, easiest ways to kind of identify a service member. Um, and I've had, I've gone up to posters where people have recognized my bracelet and they just look at me and go, you don't want to read this poster. Um, I've been in meetings where people kind of forget that I am a veteran who is injured. Uh, and things are a little bit more candid than they normally would be. Um, so sometimes it's kind of hard to hear some of those things. There's, there's, at the end of the day, there's just a lot of data that is not uh, prevy to service members. You know, they're not out there reading scholarly articles. They're, you know, um, and it's, it is kind of hard when, you know, you're, you're looking at the outcomes and, just kind of hoping that you continue to be an outlier. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Another thing that I, I was thinking about is, um, you know, you had your military career, you had your career as a scientist, um, which was like, you know, affected by and inspired by your career in the military. And now you are, um, I don't, I don't know, I guess in some senses becoming like fully transitioning to like full civilian life. Um, well, yeah. I guess I should ask the question, is this new job at all attached to anything military? Um, when I applied, I was under the impression that it was not, oh, um, okay. there, I can't say a whole lot about that. Sure. Um, but there, there is some, uh, military components and okay. obviously with my background, I very quickly get, uh, 
identified as, hey, you you would probably fit really well in this. Um, you know, you have some knowledge areas. But, you know, to your question or, or to your statement, you know, fully transitioning to the civilian side, like I, you know, I'll admit, you know, um, when I put in my notice, I, I bawled my eyes out. Um, you know, you know, I went to my wife and kind of told her, you know, I feel like I'm giving up. Um, I feel like I'm giving up on a lot of my guys. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was, again, just a reopening of that scar of, of what it was like, uh, you know, to, to out-process of the military, to get your, to get your DD-214. Um, when you medically retire, you know, they give you a, a nice little retiree flag, um, you know, so thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. Uh, good luck. And, you know, it, it definitely was reminiscent of that. Um, you know, again, you know, I put in my, my, my notice, uh, a lot of my colleagues, you know, came up and again, thanked me for my service and, mm. um, you know, again, just kind of told me good luck. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I'm scared. Um, yeah. this is, you know, I've been a, a civilian for, for 10 years. Um, but this is going to be the first time that it's really kind of being a civilian. Uh, my goal isn't military. It isn't military related. It isn't work with the military. Um, I'm excited for it, but I'm scared. Yeah. What would you say your goal is now? You know, before my goal was, was so much of, of, crafting my skill set to become a military researcher. Um, you know, making sure that my CV read up and down, there's no way that you could mistake me as anything other than a military researcher. Um, you know, my goal now is just to get, become a better scientist. Uh, you know, you asked about that transition and I told you, you know, I kind of got my ass handed to me of, having to learn some new things and that, and that's fine. But you know, you, I didn't realize how far behind the eight ball I was. Mm, um, yeah. And I spent a lot of time and yeah. a lot of effort, you know, um, bringing myself up to speed on that. And, you know, we all know that, you know, you get out of grad school as an expert in something that is so small mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's the point, right. Is you now know what you don't know, um, or you have a better understanding of what you don't know. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's my goal is to, to start, you know, identifying people that have, uh, you know, mastered areas that, that I haven't learned from them. Um, by no means do I expect to become a master at it, but just get a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully kids contribute to continue to contribute to science and, and make an impact however I can. Absolutely. So one of the things that you said stood out to me that you know, when you transition to a new job, particularly, I think for a lot of people, when they transition out of academia into, quote, the real world or industry, uh, it can be a little shocking how much we didn't, you know, how many things we didn't get exposed to. Yeah. Um, and it could be something as simple as like, you know, I, I didn't learn SQL, SQL, and that's like the, you know, program for data um, when it comes to industry or R or Python or a variety of things. But so with your, I did want to back up just a second. Uh, 
So the general dynamics information technology, is that, uh, so the job you had previously that you're just mm -hmm. now transitioning out of, that was a defense related job, is that correct? Yeah, so I refer to defense contractor. Uh, a defense contractor, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they held the contract for, for the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence or the Defense Health Agency. Um, and defense contracting was a whole new thing too. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So I, I think... I think one thing that would be great to talk about is like what it's like to trans like jump from like this pond over here called academia to defense contracting and then you haven't quite jumped to the to the next pond. But you know, these transitions we go through, like what is that like? What skills carry over? What's completely different? Anything like that. Yeah, you know, obviously some of it is is gonna be discipline specific. Yeah, um, for sure. But regardless of what your discipline is, you're always going to be excelling one area and lacking in another. Um, you know, one of the things that, that kind of stood out was people, people liked the fact that I had publications. Hmm. Um, it was, you know, more of anything like a proof of concept of like, okay, you can, you can do some science, you can do some analytical analyses, you can write, but beyond like the proof of concept, nobody cares, hmm. <laughs> at least in my arena. Um, you know, and even a large part of my job for the defense contractor was producing scientific dissemination products or, or publications. Um, and they even still were like, cool, you, you have papers, congrats, yeah. um, funding. You know, I was, I was super proud of my funding record as a, as a grad student. Uh, you know, I applied to something like 23 different grants or fellowships and I received 18 of them. Um, and you know, again, on the, the industry side, they have investors, they have money, they have, you know, uh, again, they're, they're not overly impressed by it. Hmm. For me, my biggest, uh, lacking skill was statistics. You know, hmm. you know, most of my grad work was pretty simple. It was, you know, T-tests and two A ANOVAs and. You know, again, preclinical side, you have a lot more control over confounding factors. Yeah. So that was that was new. You know, you talked about coding. You know, I, I use Baby's First Coding uh, SPSS. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of dummy proof, and they spit the code out for me if I want to feel fancy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I started learning Python. You know, I got out and realized real quick in the real world that coding skills are useful regardless of what discipline you're in. Mm-hmm. And I had never taken a single coding class in my life. Uh, yeah. Well, I actually used, uh, I was fortunate. My, my work provided Udemy. And so yeah. I just started taking every Python course I could find on that. Um, now I'm like baby's first coder, but you know, yeah. um, I mean, that transition is, is going to be different regardless of where you go. I think the important part is, is that you go in with an open mind, knowing that, especially fresh out of grad school, you're going to be deficient in multiple areas. Hmm. Get to, you know, wherever you're landing and identify the things that are important to them. It might be something as simple as soft skills. I mean, I'm a service member. I'm brash. I know it. Um, that, you know, it, you get there, you get into the corporate world, identify what they value, 
what skills are transferable and useful that you might not have and basically start your PhD over, <laughs> you know, yeah. start a deep dive into being that student that is fumbling around, not knowing how to use a pipette and figuring things out. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I feel like there's, uh, you know, we, we work so many years to get that PhD and it may not be explicitly stated, but it kind of feels like you're nothing until you get that PhD and then you're something. It's very like dichotomous thinking. And particularly if you go from academia to industry, and even if you stay in academia, but I think particularly if you make that transition, in some senses you are starting over. And yeah. there are a ton of new skills you have to learn. You have to be a beginner again. And I, I think I, I experienced some unwillingness to kind of like start over, be a beginner, learn new things. Um, and I think a lot of people probably experience that, but I, I think you're totally right. Yeah. It's, you know, there's that. For life. And I think even, you know, again, there you're pushing so hard for these three letters, right? Yeah. We, when you're in grad school, you put them up on this pedestal and they're, they're everything to you for a while. Um, and you know, one of the other things that's kind of unique about industry at least is a position might require a PhD, but Again, provided you've shown you know a proven track record, they'll easily let somebody with a master's or even a bachelor's degree take that position. Mm. So again, coming in as a fresh, brand new grad student or you know, coming straight out of grad school, you also have to kind of tone down that ego of like, well, I'm, yeah. I'm a doctor. Um, because your supervisor might be a master's mm. who has 12 years of experience and knows how to do the thing that you know how to do better than you because they've yeah. done it for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's that too. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've seen that on other sides. I'm hoping I haven't ever been that guy. I might've been, I'm hoping I haven't been, but <laughs> you know, it's definitely eye opening again, when you're like, I've spent six years to be this expert, to be this, you know, this expert in this area. And then somebody comes in with a bachelor's and they're like, yeah, you're okay at it. Let me teach you. Yeah. And so it's, it's a humbling moment too. And so that goes kind of back to, you know, that transition period of just being open, be open to, to knowing that you're going to have to learn. People are going to teach you again in the job market, you know, especially if you're coming straight out of grad school, a lot of them don't expect you. It's like being a, a, a brand new grad student. They don't actually expect a whole lot of you yet. Mm -hmm. They understand that it's going to take some time. You're going to need some grooming, some teaching. So don't go in feeling also like this pressure that, you know, you have to know how to do everything because you have these letters behind your name. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So do you have any other uh, thoughts or advice for folks who are about to, or in the midst of making that transition from uh, either leaving grad school or graduating from grad school and going into industry could be something practical, could be something mindset related. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the things that is super important that I didn't learn until much later on, but negotiating, you mm. know, um, grad school is rough. We all know it. Uh, 
you know, you're getting paid somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars, maybe. Um, and it can be really enticing that first time, you know, you get an offer, and it comes with this fancy title, and it might be a strong offer. It might be a hundred thousand dollars, which is a huge jump from where you were at. But the two things that I really urge people to think about is one: think about where where you're moving to. So I moved from South Bend, Indiana, this tiny little town. I, as a grad student, I I was paid fairly well at Notre Dame. I, I made like thirty-one thousand. Um, cost of living in South Bend was super cheap. With my stipend, um, you know, it, my military disability certainly helps. Um, but I I had a four-bedroom home. My mortgage was nine hundred bucks. You know, it's less than most people's rent. Yeah. Grad students in my cohort usually, you know, bought homes. And then I moved to Colorado Springs, where cost of living is, don't get me wrong, it's not San Francisco, but, you know, um, money does not go nearly as far. And so, you know, I got my first offer at $100,000. And I was, yes, absolutely, let's do this. Um, and then average, you know, I think average rent for like a one bedroom out here is like, $2,700 and yeah. uh, in my neighborhood, the average home is over a million dollars. And so money does not go nearly as far out here. So, you know, think one about that. And then two, one of the pieces of advice that I didn't get until it was too late, but I, I think it's fantastic. And it's one of the strongest pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. There is a big push now for salary bands to be put out for a lot of different jobs. Whether they're put out or you talk to a recruiter or eventually the hiring manager lets it slip. Let's say it's 100 to 120. They're going to come back and they're going to say, we're going to offer you 105, 107. The best piece of advice that I got was say exactly this. Thank you. I really appreciate the offer. It's a strong offer and I'm very appreciative. Can I ask, where am I lacking that doesn't demand the upper pay range. Mm -hmm. Put it on them to identify your deficits because mm -hmm. one of two things are going to happen. Either you meet all the requirements and you don't have those deficits, so they don't actually have a justification for paying you lower. Hopefully that brings you up. Or two, they do identify the deficits, and now you know what the company values. Mm -hmm. Where are you lacking and what do they value? And now you know what to work on before you actually even get into that environment where you have to sit around and go, okay, what am I not good at? Uh, and so that was one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got. And I've, I've used it in subsequent uh, you know, negotiations. And it's, it's worked out in my favor. Um, you know, making this jump, I'm getting about a 30% pay raise. Uh, and... You know, you can use it for it being, you know, PTO. Uh, you know, again, a lot of times there's higher PTO ranges for more senior individuals. But I ask them, you know, well, why don't I justify being one of those senior individuals? I am a key component, you know, position. I'm a critical position. I am a, I'm listed, you know, it might be listed as a mid-entry level position or mid-level. So you're not entry level anymore. So yeah. Why are they trying to give you three weeks of PTO instead of the five that your colleagues have? Yeah. Great advice. <laughs> Definitely advice that most people do not get in grad school. 
Uh, okay, so I've got a couple questions and then yeah. a couple more questions, and then I'll have some from Instagram to ask as well. Yeah. What skills from grad school do you think have made you most employable or most valuable on the job market? Um, for me, and the irony is I don't actually use them. Uh, my molecular skills. Oh. Um, you know, they seem to really like the idea that I can read the literature or I can read and, and analyze the data of molecular types of results. I miss, I actually, I never thought I'd say this. I kind of miss being at the bench and doing uh, those molecular experiments. Mm. But again, you know, um, you know, what a, knowing what a good and bad Western blot looks like is as simple as that sounds. Um, you know, starting to look at some of the mechanistic type of things. People seem to really love it. I don't do any of it. Um, but in most of my interviews, it has come up. Um, and honestly, you know, this, this new job, I've never performed the duties of this new job. And they were very candid about it. They're like, you, we're going to have to teach you from the ground up. And I, I asked them explicitly. I was like, can I, can I ask what, like, what made me attractive? And they're like, your molecular skills. Hmm. Not doing any of it. But just that understanding. I don't know. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, my job, when they hired me, they also pointed to skills. A couple of things I learned in grad school that I'm not using in my yeah. job. And I, and I found that so interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's just, you know, being a PI a lot of times, right? Like you're not, you know, my PI, as much as I loved him, um, you know, he was a 30, he'd, he'd been a full professor. He'd been at Notre Dame for 30 years. I remember, you know, my first couple of months in grad school, um, we had a confocal in the lab and everybody had, you know, gone out to lunch and well, I was like, well, he's my advisor. It's his job to teach me. So I walked into his office and was like, Hey, can you teach me how to turn on the scope? He was like, sure, let's do it. And he came in and I very quickly realized that he had no idea how to even turn that scope on. Uh, but he had knowledge, right. Of like what's happening and the right. theory and, and everything that's going behind it. And I think that's where it comes from where it's, you might not be doing it, but, but you have the ability to understand it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, if you could do grad school over again, is there, <coughs> excuse me, is there anything that you would do differently? Um, if I'm honest, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would do grad yeah. school again. Um, yeah. you know, one of the things that I was rather transparent about, when I was in grad school, um, you know, I was a medic in the army. Uh, I, I was in Afghanistan at one of the most deadliest years of Afghanistan of the Afghanistan war. Um, and I was in one of the worst places. Uh, so I was, I was on the, the Eastern border of Pakistan. Um, and as a medic, I, I dealt with a lot of people being severely injured or dying. Um, and I will still easily say that grad school has done more damage to me hmm. mentally and emotionally than war has. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I do grad school again, honestly. Yeah. One of the things that's coming up a lot in, uh, interviews recently is whenever I ask questions like that, it's almost always like mental health related. It's like, yeah. I should have 
done more self-care. I should have set more boundaries. Um, yeah, certainly. You know, there's a toll. to that point, you know, the one thing that I, another piece of advice that, that this isn't for grad students, these are for undergrads, but the thing that I lucked out on, um, you know, I think the priority when you're looking for, for your home for grad school, um, it needs to be first and foremost, uh, PI that's understanding and compassionate. My PI was very demanding, hmm. but you know, I experienced a divorce and the death of my father while I was in grad school. You know, my advisor knew that I had mental health issues and I remember very explicitly when my father died, um, you know, he, I went in to, to tell him I'm, I'm clearly distraught. Um, I remember him telling me this. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come into my office every Tuesday and Thursday. I don't care if it's only for five minutes, but you're going to come into my office every Tuesday and Thursday. So I can see that you've showered, that you're eating, that you're changing your clothes. Don't worry about coming in. You're, you're still going to get paid. We'll figure out you know, your TA assignments, all that. But you're going to come in every Tuesday and Thursday until I feel comfortable. Deal? Um... That's important. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question from me before we go to Instagram. Uh, what is your hot take on academia versus industry? <laughs> um, end of the day, uh, you know, the thing that I always heard was, you know, in academia, you get to decide what you research sure but you only research what you get funding for so how much are you really deciding um academia has its pros right like you you get a lot more you do you get a lot more freedom over what you look at and how you look at it um academia you know industry though has just been it's been night and day difference my work-life balance is fantastic my pay is significantly better um you know, I make more now than most, you know, uh, associate professors. Um, it's different. You know, you're a lot more compartmentalized. You don't get to be as attached to what you're researching. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to decide what's important for you. You know, I, I knew that I was not a good teacher. That's, that's what it came down to. Um, and so I went the, the industry route and, you know, um, if there's anybody that's, that's bouncing around, you know, wanting to know more about, about the industry side or that transition, you know, they can always reach out to me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and, uh, plug that here. We talked earlier, um, that you wanted folks to reach out to you on LinkedIn. Yeah. Right? Go ahead and find me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Okay. So, and I'll have a link in the description of this podcast episode that folks can just scroll down, click, and then. Uh, you can go straight to Jamie's LinkedIn page. All right. We are almost out of time. How about some questions from Instagram? Yeah, let's do it. How do you market yourself for jobs outside of academia when you've mostly been in academia? Uh, I think one of the important things to do is to learn the vocab of where you're trying to apply. Hmm. Right. Um, so I, for instance, on my CV, I don't put down, you know, graduate student. I don't put down research assistant. I put down graduate research fellow. Um, 
you know, I put down that I lead and develop, you know, uh, the development of novel preclinical type of models, examining a wide range of central nervous system type of injuries and diseases, things like that. So find what the the vocab is of the area that you're you're trying to pursue and identify where what they list underneath this position is what you did. Um, and then, you know, market your, your hard skills. That seems to be the big thing, especially when you're coming out. You know, they're looking for somebody that needs to be taught, but somebody that's also an expert in largely probably some of the skill sets that you, you have. Don't focus so tightly and neat, you know, neatly on what your project was. You know, if you're studying, you know, uh, a pathway or kidney development or something like that, consider yourself a cell molecular type of biologist. You know, broaden your skill sets. Don't pigeonhole yourself so tightly. Um, and I think that's probably the best advice that I have as far as like getting some recognition from people. Secondly, also, when you find a job, pump that job or that, that company into LinkedIn put in the word recruiter or talent acquisition behind it, find those people, send them a message. Say, hey, I can see that you're a recruiter at Merck or Eli Lilly. There's a position I'm really interested in that I think I'd be a great fit at. Could we talk? You know, even if it's, you know, you get like 300 characters when you're trying to add somebody as a connection. You know, I do it all the time. Um, and then you can put your resume in front of them you're not relying just on that that automated system anymore of getting through the filter. You're putting it from a live, you know, a live person. Be nice with them. Be kind with them. Don't send your resume until they ask. Apparently, that's a pet peeve of theirs. Um, Interesting. But be nice. Be friendly. If you're not a good fit, or if they tell you, you know, they ghost you, and you know, go back and say, "Hey, apparently, I wasn't a great fit. I appreciate your time. Any suggestions?" most of the time you're going to get ghosted, but you know, two out of 10, they're going to come back and say, yeah, your resume, you're brand new. It needs to be one page. Don't send me three. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think, uh, just one small thing to add, you need a LinkedIn, you know, <laughs> nine, yeah. nine times out of 10, every grad student listening is going to need a LinkedIn. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, don't jump on that until it's way late. too late. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's some small things you can do. Uh, you know, there you can put things in the queue, whether it be you posting things or whatnot. I very much so try to make my LinkedIn look like a business card. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, I, I spoke about how I wanted you to look at me and you could not mistake me for anything other than a military scientist. Yep. When you go to my LinkedIn, that's exactly what it reads. You know, I have military helmets as my background profile picture. You know, I when you look at my activity, I'm interacting with service members or veteran organizations or things like that. You know, there's no way that you can go to my LinkedIn and, and see otherwise. And so brand yourself that way too. If, you know, you really want to do kidney disease type of things, interact with, you know, uh, different organizations that are working on those types of diseases, comment on people that are doing the job that you want to do. Again, just brand yourself and market yourself and, you know, realize that people are going to see you in a spotlight. You have some ability to alter that perception. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, last question from Instagram, and then let's wrap things up. It's kind of similar, but this is still a good one. What do you think the best skills to bolster while you're in grad school for your future industry career? Coding. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I do think a lot of coders get disappointed on is R does not seem to be heavily used in industry. Yeah. Uh, it's basically an academic tool. Now, end of the day, right, it's if you know Italian, you can learn French relatively easy. Um, but if you don't know how to code, start learning. Even if it's just basic, simple, you know, elementary type of, of coding, it one shows that you have the ability to, again, recognize that you're not an expert in something and start picking something up. Um, and again, you'd just be amazed at how many jobs utilize it. And it's just a, it's a great skill too. If, you know, I'm mainly a wet lab scientist, I'm a bench scientist, um, and I'm going to work from home now. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who really wants to work from home or wants the freedom to be able to move across the country to, to do that type of job, I mean, you know, all you need to code is a computer. Yeah. So... Um, that'd be my biggest piece of advice. Python seems to be a big one. SQL seems to be a big one. Um, those are the, the two that I see the most as I've been on the market looking. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right, Jamie. Uh, last question. <clears throat> what is the one thing that grad students listening should do before they graduate? Start planning your exit. Don't be so uh, anxious to push yourself out. Realize that grad school has a safety net and it, it might not be the most comfortable place, but I see way too many grad students that are eager to push themselves out. They're, they're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing. I'm graduating in March. And then they don't start looking for a job until about February. Um, do yourself a favor, you know, um, slow down, write that dissertation line by line, take breaks, come and sit outside for a little bit, uh, apply to two jobs of interest every day. Hmm. And I would start that about six months out. Yeah. Great advice. Jamie, I, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you uh, so much you. for coming on the podcast. This has been a real pleasure. Of course. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll talk with you in the future. And again, uh, if you want to connect with Jamie and follow along in his journey, you can check him out on LinkedIn. I will have a link in the description of this episode that you can just scroll down, click, and go straight to his LinkedIn page. Jamie, sir, thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Have a great one. You too. Folks, thank you for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of my interview with Jamie today. I'll be honest, I was really moved by the conversation with Jamie, both the day that I did the interview as well as the days when I've returned to the interview to edit it and prep it for publishing on the podcast. The main thing that affected me was Jamie's description of himself as a patient researcher, the emotional toll that it took on him when he decided to leave his research career on traumatic brain injuries behind, and how he felt like he was giving up on his fellow service members by changing his career path. 
And the reason that this affected me was because of why I went to grad school. When I was a child, I had some traumatic experiences that shaped the way I saw and interacted with the world. I went on to become a therapist and work specifically with traumatized kids and young adults, and then I pursued a research career in studying the effects of trauma on children. And when I decided to leave that career behind, I felt like I had let down the population that I'd been working with and learning about for over a decade, a population that I'd grown to identify with. And I share this not to steal Jamie's thunder or say that my experiences are somehow equivalent to his. I share this simply to underscore a specific point that I took away from my conversation with Jamie. And that point is, though it may feel otherwise, it's not our job to save the world. And sometimes protecting yourself is a difficult choice to make, but it's still a good one. Many, many grad students find themselves in graduate school because they want to make a difference in the world. And that is a noble pursuit. And there is a reason why flight attendants on airplanes tell you to put the mask on yourself first before helping others should the cabin lose air pressure. We must always make sure that we can continue to breathe air before and while helping others find healing. And sometimes we simply come to a crossroads where taking off the mantle of the wounded healer is simply the right choice for us to make. Anyway, that's probably more emotion than you bargained for, but I hope it speaks to someone listening who needed to hear it. So let's end the show on that note. Thank you for listening. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to check out the description of today's episode for a link to Jamie's LinkedIn profile if you want to connect with him or follow along in his post-grad school journey. And as always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. Here are Jamie's responses to the bonus questions. See you all next time. All right, Jamie. So your first question, what is your spirit animal? Um, honestly, as cliche as, as it is, uh, like a pit bull. Um, yeah. I, I have uh, four pits myself. Um, they're big. They're goofy. People are scared of them. Mm. Uh, but they're loyal as hell. And, uh, you know, they're just big goofballs. Um, yeah. I do everything I can to to try to look big and scary when I'm outside, you know, outside of my office. But um, at the end of the day, I love people. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. I think pit bulls have a uh, I don't know. I think they're misunderstood because of outliers. But I mean, those are the ones that make the news for sure. Uh, what would you say is your superpower? Like your real life superpower? Um. The ability just to take abuse. <laughs> that, that's that's all grad students' superpower, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the military's taught me really quickly just to, to deal with things changing, um, mm. whether those be expectations, circumstances, uh, you know, what you have to do. Just kind of deal with it. Um, you know, don't let it shake you. Figure out what needs to be done, how to knock it out, and how to get back on the path of, of, you know, at least a resistance and where you want to go. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Last question. If you could teleport anywhere in the world at any time for as long as you wanted and then teleport back whenever you wanted, what would that place be? Uh, it is a area in Western Italy called Cinque Terre. 
so I lived in Italy for about four years. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Yeah. Sounds lovely. 